Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the podcast that deals with angels, demons, and everything in between. I am Klaus Yoder, and with me tonight is the esteemed, the amazing Travis Stevens. Travis, how are you doing tonight? I cannot wait to be back for season three. Super, super excited about what we're going to be talking about today. The fact that we're going to get quite nerdy and uh, going to get into gender theory. I mean, what could be better? Yeah. How about you, Klaus? How are you feeling? Are you pumped? I'm good. I'm pumped. I'm good. You know, like one of the main things we're talking about is going back to Adam and Eve and the serpent in the garden. So I feel like that's appropriate for season three to be talking about, to sort of reiterate the bad beginnings of everything. There's sort of that hope of new beginnings in making the same mistakes over and over again. So yeah, that's the spirit with which I'm taking this episode. So yeah, good to be back. <laughs> <laughs> season three, back in the garden. Perfect. I love it. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, did we ever leave the garden? No. Um, <laughs> no. This is early Christian theology. No, the garden is a, a continuous obsession. Anyway, we're talking today about John Chrysanthemum. No, wait, John (laughs) Chrysanthemum. That was a joke. (laughs) Chrysostom. Chrysanthemum, Chrysostom, Chrysostom. The golden mouthed. Yeah. As usual, we will pronounce it differently, and that's one of my favorite things about the podcast. So how how would you pronounce it? I will be saying John Chrysostom, but I really want you to say John Chrysostom so that we can just keep everyone guessing. (laughs) Chrysostom, yeah. Chrysanthemum, like Chrysostom. It. Yeah, that's, that's what we're yeah. doing. So John Chrysostom is not in the Middle Ages, and we sort of build season three as the Middle Ages pod season. And you might be asking, why are you doing this to us? You promised the Middle Ages, and this is not the Middle Ages. Well, that's we're true. trying to keep up with the Eastern side of the of Christian history, what's, what would become Eastern Orthodoxy, the Byzantine Empire, because there's a lot of cool stuff that happens in demonology and angelology in particular with the theologian Pseudo-Dionysus. And we're kind of building up to Pseudo-Dionysus. We're going to talk about some Eastern figures like John, Maximus the Confessor. We're going to talk about Neoplatonism at some point soon, too, to sort of sketch out the philosophical and metaphysical foundations for this interesting method of doing theology, but also this angelology and demonology. So we're trying to build up the East a little bit. Also, we forgot about him. There was we were talking a lot about you know the the Cappadocian fathers and Athanasius, and we sort of just lost track. And he's he's in the middle of that Cappadocian, you know, Evagrius, you know, origin side of the of the system of demonology we've been talking about. So that's one thing. The other thing is we'll be tracking medieval anti-Semitism and anti-Judaism, and boy, do we get a good dose of that with John. Chrysostom. So that's that was sort of the idea for starting with him. We also found this cool article about Chrysostom on the Garden of Eden and what the devil is doing with the serpent there. So that kind of all brought it together as our starting point for this season. Um, so yeah, Travis, perhaps you can enlighten our dear listeners about the life and times of John Chrysostom. Chrysostom, or I however would- you say it. Well, I would love to, but I think since you mentioned Neoplatonism, I need to mention to you something important that happened to me last week. I was texting with a friend named Robert, who is a philosopher, and 
I might have used the word platonic at one point and he wrote back and he was using voice to text um, and he mentioned Plato, but his phone decided to spell it like the, um, the toy for children. Yes, Play-Doh. <laughs> so I just awesome. thought you should know about that. Um, awesome. In any event, yes. But back to um, John Chrissy um, or John Chrysanthemum, our, our man of the hour. So he was born in Antioch in modern Syria, around about 347 CE. So yes, we are pre-medieval at this point. Um, he got a really nice education, sort of like someone else I know um, who's on this pod, or a couple of guys I know on this pod. A nice education, um, <laughs> I would say, uh, from a guy who was maybe a little bit more into his rhetoric than it turns out John, John Chrissy, ended up being. Uh, however, um, he did leave us these amazing and horrifying, at times, homilies, which we will be discussing in particular. So I'm looking forward to that. He was ordained a priest eventually after a monastic period in which he really kind of got too excited about, you know, staying up all night and praying and fasting and he got pretty sickly. Um, so not a great, not a great time in his life, but I think becoming a priest was the right direction for him. Um, important context in his life, Theodosius, um, the emperor of the Roman Empire, you may have heard of him, uh, names Christianity as the empire's official religion around the same time that he's ordained a priest. So like just six years before he becomes a priest, Christianity is the official religion. You may remember Constantine. Constantine is before his conversion, uh, but Constantine did not declare Christianity to be the official religion of the empire, but that has now just happened um, in the lifetime of our dude. Some scholars estimate that the population of Antioch was maybe two-thirds Christian with one-third divided between Jews and pagans, many of the latter, that is the pagans, making up the imperial bureaucracy. So just to give you some vague idea, we aren't 100% sure, speaking of fractions and percentages, of exactly how the uh, population of that town was, but it's important to know that it was historically, Antioch was historically a very important center for Judaism. And so that becomes quite important as we understand why he's writing the particular homilies he is against um, Jewish Christians, against Jews. We will talk about that distinction. Um, yeah. But it becomes a hugely important center for Christianity as well. It's one of the early centers um, of theology, etc. Antiochian Christianity, known for their, for example, is known as opposed to Alexandrian Christianity, is known for their attention to historical context, not in the way that we would think of, um, but looking for meaning, meanings that are relatively literal that are informed by the history that surrounds them, as opposed to the Alexandrians who tended to jump much faster to allegorical interpretation. So fun fact. So Christianity being the imperial religion, the official imperial religion did not make everyone super Catholic or super Orthodox all at once. There was lots of syncretism going on. So you get scholars talking about terms like demi-pagans, demi-Jews, demi-Christians. Um, so think about empires changing official religions, there were a lot of conversions and a lot of suspicion around how deep those conversions truly were and whether people were maintaining practices that belonged to the religions they grew up with, whether that was Judaism or pagan Roman religion. 
Yeah, yeah. I was gonna, I was gonna say we're we're gonna see this pattern of like suspicion regarding the sincerity of conversions and sincerity of religious affiliation, especially as we get into Spain and the Reconquista and the Inquisition. So that will be, I'm sure, a feature of our discussions of demonology this season. So yeah, just to, we'll see a pattern with this kind of anxiety, especially regarding Jewish Christian relations. So yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, as a relatively new religion, you can imagine that it wasn't so much at this particular time and place about p- seeking purity as it was about seeking a stable religious identity. Uh, that is not an excuse for what we're about to talk about. Um, but I think it's an important yeah. distinction between what we will see later. This is a time where being a Jew or being a Christian might reasonably be confused one for the other, um, which will change drastically over the next you know, thousand years or so. Anyway. Yeah, this, this, is, this is really the moment when it starts to, when the, the ambiguities start to come under pressure and there starts to be, yeah, a push for clarity for better mm-hmm. or worse, mostly for worse, <laughs> I would say. <laughs> Mainly for worse. So yeah. um, he gets called to Constantinople to become the patriarch there, the archbishop there in 397. Um, this is my favorite. He had to be abducted because there was a fear that the population would riot due to his popularity. Um, I, I'm wondering if this is going to happen to you, Klaus, at some point. I mean, your students, <laughs> they love you. I, like this might just, you might want to watch your, watch your sex, okay? Because yeah. we don't yeah. know what's going to happen. Um, his preaching in particular was quite popular. Um, he was all about reforming the clergy, didn't want people going in for all that, like all those pleasures of human life, um, the you know rich, refined clothing, fancy meals, etc. Um, and he was especially critical of women wearing fancy clothes, um, which I'm angry about because I feel like why can't we be mad at men for wearing fancy clothes? Or maybe I should be happy about it, so my like sparkly shoes wouldn't have been an issue. I think. I can't. I can't abandon my sisters, though. Yeah. My, my fashion sisters. I, th- I just I think can't. We'll, I think it'll become clear when we talk about the, his demonology a little bit. Why? Why he thought that? But yeah, I, I, a fair point to be sure. There was there was some interesting rumors that he was involved in the destruction of the Temple of Artemis in Ephesus. He's this is attributed from like later historians and, and figures, and it reminds me of a, our first season when we sort of get this uh, demonization of classical culture and this assault on ancient pagan, you know, pagan is, is, is sort of a derivative term or a derogatory term, I mean. But uh, that, that Chrysostom, you know, has time to be really intensely, nastily anti-Semitic and anti-Judaic, but also is there to destroy the the remnants of, the, the remnants is maybe even pushing it a little far, like the, the strong traces and the strong like minority that was classical polytheistic Greco-Roman religion that he, and whether he did it or not, like he, it's, it's easy to believe that he could be like part of one of these mobs that destroys a temple, a, a famous one at that. Okay. Let's talk about more stories about him. Um, Klaus, what do you know about the tall brothers? These, <laughs> the tall brothers. These, these guys and like whether or not he supported them and what all this has to do with origin. What do, you, what do you know? Yeah, so he goes to Constantinople, but he, there's more than one bishop. 
there's because there's all these factions of theological persuasion that are in play there we have Ro- we have emperors of rome who go from being arian to you know to sort of like vacillating across the the trinitarian and christological sphere favoring one community over the other and so john's sort of in the middle of that and in the middle of that to keep saying that phrase uh he part of the controversy with his rivals was that yeah he supported the tall brothers these egyptian monks who were being grouped together and sort of ramrodded into this category of originists which became a heresy as, as we said in the origin episode origin is known as like one of the great heretics of the history of Christian theology, he wasn't a heretic in his life and times. He may have been annoying to certain people, but he was not <laughs> a heretic. It took a few hundred years for him to get that that epithet. And so this is another moment of that process. And it's interesting because the Tall Brothers are accused of being originists, and Origen is is the big dog of Alexandria. He's the the sort of the, the one of the the founders of that school of allegorical interpretation. And Antioch and Alexandria are positioned against each other in the Christological controversies that are coming, probably are starting to happen around this time, but are really, really coming to the fold into the into their own in the next century. And it's I, I, I found this I found this really interesting that 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 Chrysostom was going to stick up for these people and to sort of get stained by the originist taint too. And, and like, I don't know, I, I, just, I was confused because he is described as being so much of Antioch and like so steeped in Antiochian uh, theology and to be like, oh, he'll, he's he's siding with these Alexandrians was, was surprising to me. And like sort of obviously party affiliation can be a little bit of a superficial way to parse these things, but it, it did stand, stand out. And it was it was part of the controversy that surrounded his his role as bishop in as archbishop in Constantinople. Okay, but also he got in a big, there was like all this drama around the Empress Eudoxia, right? So he gets in trouble because she gets a statue uh, built of herself near his cathedral. You may have heard of it, Hagia Sophia, right? Uh, Well, not, I mean, spoiler alert, it's not the same one um, that happens later because... (laughs) Yeah. Turns out, so he's denouncing her, um, and well, not her, but this the erection of this statue as idolatrous, right? You're not supposed to have statues of empresses. It's too much like emperor worship, which has a history, and he's not into it because Christianity. So this leads to his banishment, and that, remember how popular he is, just like Klaus, that sparks riots in the street. <laughs>
just, I'm just saying probably what would happen if Klaus got fired from his job. Like there would be riots in the streets and, and all of that led to the destruction of the first Hagia Sophia. So that, yeah, I'm just saying all the buildings at the, at your workplace might get toppled if you get fired. I don't know why I were talking about the end of your job. You're very popular. That doesn't mean that it threatens your workplace. It's good yeah. news for everyone. Yeah. Be, so. Sometimes, sometimes being very popular can be a liability, I think is, is the lesson. And well, yeah. it's sort of like being beautiful, which I know more about. Um, but I mean, I'm both beautiful <laughs> and popular, so I guess I guess I know about all of it. But anyway, our well, um, speaking speaking of beauty, you were saying that he's really harsh on women's dress. Apparently, Eudoxia also took that personally and thought that she was being targeted in particular. So he had a powerful enemy there. So yeah, interesting point. Yeah. So anyway, um, this is the sort of last big dramatic. Um, plot in his life because he dies shortly thereafter in 407. Wah, yeah. wah. So yeah. let's talk about something really fun and light that's not at all difficult or um, irritating. And that would be Against the Jews, um, which mm-hmm. in fact is actually a very difficult text um, full of what it sounds like, anti-Semitism. Um, but it's not just anti-Semitism. For the purposes of our pod, we're also going to be talking about what it has to do with his view of what it means to be evil, what it means to be, because as we've seen in Christian theology, every time you're pointing toward God, pointing toward the good, there's this other side where you can also pay attention to what counts as evil and who gets counted as evil, who gets lumped in as demonic or associated with Satan. That is the kind of rationale for why we were entering into this thorny text here. Um, Not least because we need to talk about anti-Semitism in Christianity. It's just an important thing to remember. Yeah, especially for this podcast. I think we've we've sort of been keeping track of that all along. We've talked about the witness doctrine and Augustine. We obviously talked about how this matters for Paul and the Gospel of John. So yeah, we this is something that we always need to keep on the front burner, maybe sometimes in the back burner and then bring it to the front when we need to really get into the, 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 the awful dish that is Christian anti-Semitism. Um, but yeah, I, I think like, I mean, Chris, Chrysostom's discourses or homilies, like they were being used by the Nazis as they were being doctored up by, by Nazis as a way of sort of helping to show the deep seated tradition of Christian anti-Jewish violence. So yeah, they had a long life. I mean, along with uh, Luther's, you know, the Jews and their lies, which other texts we'll get to, I'm sure. But yeah, so like there are eight of these sermons, they are preached during Lent close to Passover. And this was a time among others in the Jewish liturgical calendar, I think New Year as well, when Chrysostom saw many Christians celebrating with Jews in synagogues. And I, I, we were in preparation for this episode, we read a little bit of Against the Jews and for context, some of the introduction from a 20th century translation. And that scholar kind of describes the situation this way. Even after the triumph of the church, Jewish proselytism and the energetic Judaizing movement persisted at Antioch because the Jewish community was strong and had a history reaching back to the foundation of the city. Here was the place where the Maccabees had been martyred. He was the site of their tomb. As local saints, these martyrs were popular with both Christians and Jews. The common veneration of their relics led to a syncretism which was perilous for the Christian faith. Even though the church had taken over the synagogue which housed their tomb, it failed to root out the syncretism. Although many Christians saw little danger in the common cult, 
the church recognized this syncretism as a very real peril and chose the middle course of venerating the Maccabees as saints of the Old Covenant and precursors of the Christian martyrs. So yeah, there's basically like we're talking about a place where there's a lot of overlap in culture and tradition and common life between Jews and Christians in this the Syrian city. And this the Maccabees tradition is something that sort of brings them together. And so Chrysostom is seeing like would-be Christians mingling with Jews and Jewish celebrations. And there's like, there's this anxiety about protecting boundaries of the tradition. We were talking about this before, like how to, how do you make sure that the church stays triumphant? How do you make sure you have a basis of followers who you can control and who you can identify and, and discipline and all these things? Um, and so that's, I think it's a lot of the anxiety here. And like right off the bat, I mean, if you read these, I mean, I think part of the appeal Chrysostom had was he seems to have been like a very passionate orator. And like, he really just launches into the Christ killer epithet that that has been used to has been used to sort of smear Jews, um, especially since this period in time, and like synagogues are called temples of the demons. There's all like there's all of this taking the worst parts of the problematic moments in the New Testament and just like turning it up to eleven, just like really going intense. And I don't I don't even need to belabor the details. Like I I don't know if anything would really shock you. I mean beyond like synagogues are bad don't go to them because that's where demons live and these are the people who killed christ like that's basically kind of what it boils down to that's a fair but summary I, I really, yeah. It, yeah i mean like I, you know i don't we don't need to close read it i mean I, as far as i'm concerned um but there was also this point that he references sort of in a, in a mean spirit that shows the kind of complexity of jewish christian pagan relations uh, and it's it's this moment when when uh, a once Christian emperor turned sort of sort of turning away from Christian from Christianity, Julian the Apostate, he's like sort of building these almost anti-Christian coalitions, and he offers to help the Jewish community restore the temple at Jerusalem, like, and this was a few decades before John's working, and like the Jewish community in the last 300, 400 years has had a pretty rough time, like we we've talked about this with the apocalypse materials and. The various gospels like we're like these these christian early christian texts are being produced when jerusalem is being destroyed when the temple of jerusalem is being destroyed when jews are being forced out of jerusalem and and scattered far and wide and from the roman perspective this was supposed to be in effect for forever they they rebrand the city as alia capitolina like it doesn't even have the same name anymore during this period and so like that was the nadir when John's working, there's sort of a bit of a bounce back, but the situation is really precarious. Jews are recognized as citizens in the Byzantine Empire, but during the reign of Theodosius and the first and the second, they're barred. They're officially barred from the civil service and military. Like this was sometimes not always rigidly enforced. And but there's like a there's a moratorium on the construction of new synagogues. So like there's like sort of like this really careful hemming in of the Jewish community in this context. But that's like, so that's a little bit of the context of what's going on. Anxieties about not being able to distinguish Christians and Jews and discipline them accordingly. What was your, you, you, you braved and read through this entire introduction. (laughs) Um, What did you think of the apology for Chrysostom's uh, 
work here because this this thing that we read we're not even naming the scholar not not even on purpose i just like i it's it's he's of little consequence to me (laughs) even though we're sort of relying on him here but like what was what did you take to be the main defense of what chrysostom was doing in this text yeah he was trying to make a distinction between quote-unquote real anti-semitism and the rhetoric that he saw in john chrysostom and was saying it was a little hard to follow. It was a little hard to read at times. In particular, the idea that the audience mattered, that, okay, sure, this this rhetoric, this invective against um, Jews, well, there are a couple of important moves here. But one was audience. The He was preaching these sermons, it seems, in Christian churches. And so the people who would have heard it would have been Christians. Um, he was also concerned uh, to make to talk about what a quote unquote Judaizing Christians. So we've already intimated that there was some overlap in religious practice between Jews and Christians in Antioch at this time. Jews were known, for example, for being good physicians. You would go to a synagogue and maybe hang out there and try to get healed. They would use things like amulets. They would use um, incantations. They would use um, holy words in their healing services. And that was painted, of course, with a negative um, slant by by Chrysostom as as using magic, right, right, Jewish magic, and how that's bad and forbidden by God, etc. Um, but there was a lot of overlap. So people would Christians, quote unquote Christians, would go to synagogues in the period um, preceding Easter during Lent. Um, they would also go sometimes to synagogues to the tribunal to get some legal to to get justice um, outside of the the Roman or the um, the Byzantine, rather, legal system, judicial system, uh, for various reasons. They thought that was a better place to go. It was holier. It was closer to God. And these were very threatening, as we've mentioned before. So Judaizing Christians were supposedly the audience for these horrible, this horrible invective against Jews. Um, and I just, I, I did not buy that that rescued him at all. Uh, I tried to imagine a kind of parallel scenario where if we were talking not about religion, but about the history of race and someone came in spilling racist bile in, you know, a school or a church or something, and the audience was all white. Why is that better in my mind? Um, I, I just, why is that any better than, um, spilling that same racist bile in front of a black audience, for example, or an audience of color. Um, And I just didn't quite buy the excuse he was trying to make here. Um, Yeah, I think he just liked Chrysostom for other texts and other reasons and was looking for a way to to get him out. But I just don't think, I I would hope that in the 2020s, we no longer uh, can accept that kind of argument. I don't know, we're living through the CRT moral panic. And I was you, your example. I think is interesting because, like, it's like right. Like, I think most of a lot of the racist work that gets done in public discourse, yeah, it is directed internally, like in intra-race, interracially. You know, like I think like that's the that's the bizarre part. Is like that's where a lot of the violence is prepared in in those sorts of settings. And the other thing about like the so like a lot of people or later versions translate this as like against the Judaizers or against Judaizing Christians. As, as far as I can tell from glancing at a lexicon, like 
there is a word for Judaizing in Greek, but that's not the word that's the title of the sermon. It's against the Jews. Like it's, it doesn't say against the Jews. They had it. They could, he could have said that if that's what he wanted to say, but he didn't say that. And this whole thing where it's like, Oh, like I am condemning the Jews to a Christian audience. Again, that's already in question, given the whole context we laid out, that this is a purely Christian audience. The whole point is that that doesn't exist. Like, that's the point. Um, So there's that. And to be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to spew this bile against the Jews, but I'm, but according to this, this editor and and introducer and and translator, I'm doing it as a way of disciplining and speaking to a Christian, a purely Christian congregation. And somehow we're supposed to be able to bracket the condemnation of Judaizing with the condemnation of Jews. It's like, that's a pretty like toilet paper thin wall between the Judaizing and the Jews there. What characterizes the Judaizing? The fact that it makes them like Jews. Like, come on, like it, it's, it's, it falls <laughs> apart <laughs> like at the merest like tap. Like, so I, yeah, yeah, I don't know. Um, so yeah, that was, I knew like, I didn't want to belabor this because it's mostly just gross and it's not, I mean, it's, impo- it's a very important historically. It's not particularly interesting. It, so we, we've, we've like registered that it's there and that it's, he's, he's part of that history, a history that's going to stay with us to the present. So, yeah. But there's, there's another think, fun part. Yeah, yeah, yeah go, go ahead, go ahead. I mean, I think the most interesting part of delving into that for me was, was not, of course, the bile um, or the thin excuses by later scholars to excuse it. It was the idea that Christians and Jews could be confused for one another all the way into the fourth century that was sort of the surprising, you know, slightly surprising moment for me that there could be some crossover and what, how different things could have been if that ambiguity would have continued. It's kind of fun to imagine. Yeah. Like a, a shared, yeah, shared holidays, shared celebrations where a, like a larger community can come together ritually. That seems outside of sort of specific interfaith services. I don't see a lot of that today for well because of that because of that history of you know violence that we are we've alluded to and and especially especially during around around uh around uh, during lent and around around holy week and passover for sure and i think i might i don't want to like fall into a crude kind of anti-clericalism but i wonder how much the the development of the distinction has to do with the formalization and empowerment of clerical hierarchies and their investment in their own institutional capital and status and for me that's that's a question in terms of like you see the 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 power of the bishops and the power of patriarchs and the power of popes like how much that has to do with like you know making sure you know which populations you control and trying to empower your control over them that's 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 a question i have um, but that's 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 a speculative or at least a historical hypo- hypothetical question I don't have the answer to. What I do have is some more legendary background on the monastic period of John's life because you said we don't we, all we know about John's monastic period is that he made himself sick. I see a pattern there. That's also what that's a Gregory the Great thing too. I think like this is this is a thing that happens when you're just a little bit too a little bit too earnest about learning the Bible by heart and well, and it becomes, praying. yeah. And it also becomes a holiness trope, right? Certainly later it's in the Middle Ages. I think it's a trope. Yeah. 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 I think, I think it's getting tropified here, but anyway, 
one of the stories, and and then what's interesting about this story is that it's a really popular theme for medieval and especially early modern art is the legend of the penance of John Chrysostom. And so the story is like when he's a monk, a monastic or a hermit, he's in the desert and this really beautiful princess is like, oh man, I'm gonna I'm gonna be eaten. You gotta come, you gotta let me in and help me. And I think we talked about this when we talked about the Desert Fathers. Like women would appear and monks would be like, oh it's the demon. And so that's what John thinks. And so he refuses her, but she's able to convince him that she, you know, A, she's a Christian, again, sort of playing into this this sort of gatekeeping stuff, and that she's gonna be eaten by wild animals if he doesn't help her. It's like, okay, I guess I better help her. And he tries to divide his cave. You know, he's living in a cave like he's Sasquatch here. He's trying to divide the cave into two parts. <laughs> one for each of them. It's like, I'm going to take the charcoal. I'm going to draw a line here. And the part with the pile of bones is your part. And the part with the, the smoldering, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> the bear skins or whatever is my part. I don't know. Um, and so in spite of all these intense precautions, I, 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 as this is how it's put in certain texts, the sin of fornication was committed. <laughs> so... They banged. Uh, <laughs> and so this is this is where things get really... And I think this actually does speak to John's character in some way. Like, this story does get at something where John realizes that he's done something wrong. And instead of, I don't know, taking responsibility, he takes the princess and throws her off a cliff. Ay, yay, yay. I just uh, need so, a moment. It's yeah, so, it's just so it's so the misogyny is so deep here. But okay, please continue. Like so many ways to move forward. Ask forgiveness. Um, you know, she's a princess and she has now had sex. So that is already a problem for her in a patriarchal society. Do we make amends to her? Do we beg forgiveness from pull, God? Do, pull no. an origin. Cut off your own nuts. Like I don't know. Like there are other options here. Like yeah, there were. Oh, well. options. She's so off the cliff now. He can't get... This is, again, this is where the story is kind of ridiculous. He went to Rome for absolution. Why would he go to Rome? Like, like again, like, this is clearly a product of the Latin Middle Ages. Yes. He, finally, again, I guess after his uh, his cruise across oh, we should the Mediterranean say, to Rome. Nor, like, if he was going to go somewhere, he would have gone to Constantinople, right? There's Rome yeah. is, is out of the picture yeah. at this point. Yes. Or, or Antioch. I think I think Antioch was the closest place, but yeah. Antioch would have been fine. Yes. Yes. It would have been, it would have made a lot more sense than traversing the entire Roman Empire. <laughs> anyway, he, it takes some time, but he realizes that he did something wrong. And so he makes mm. a vow that he would never get up off the ground and would crawl around like an animal until his sins were expiated. And he was going to live like a beast and feed on wild grasses and roots. He was going to sort of, he's going to enter into some, some diet, some California diet craze that I'm sure you're going to tell me about later. Um, <laughs> well, it strikes me that this, actually, this is actually a parallel to the serpent. Like you're, you sin, you're cursed and you're flattened, right? The serpent was able to like be upright, but then after the curse, the certain, the serpent has to, um, has to move about on the ground. Um, and yeah, I'm sure that's, we'll get into his reading of the garden, so. Yeah, I was gonna say that, thought. I was gonna say that later, yeah, that he, Ah, I stole your thunder, sorry, sorry. It's okay, it's okay. So anyway, the princess eventually reappears. Miraculously, she's alive. She's suckling the saint's baby. And 
she the baby's like the baby tells the baby tells John, uh, get up off the ground. Your sins are forgiven. <laughs> it's so weird. But like Albrecht Durer does the version of this. There's like a lot of interesting versions of this story. And you see you'll see this you'll see the princess with the baby, and then you'll see some creepy old man like Bob from Twin Peaks, like in the background, sort of just like scuttling around. I think maybe this was the inspiration for Bob from Twin Peaks. Mic drop. That's it. That's my hottest take of the night. And John- that's <laughs> it, folks. See you next week. Bow, 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 bow. Um, yeah, that's, that's it. <laughs> so, yeah. Okay, so we talked about the anti-Semitism bits, necessary fare, and our demonology extravaganza. We're going to talk a little bit about what some interesting features of his demonology in general. So just to start, he's got a pretty standard account of the devil's fall. Satan was too proudful, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing really radical going on there. There's interesting room for debate about his theory of the atonement atonement theory is something we talk about a bunch in this podcast that is how jesus saves humans from the devil or saves humans from whatever from death and sin and some scholars the the historian of the devil jb russell whose books we've consulted at various times in this podcast is pretty adamant that chrysostom is against the ransom theory against the whole paradigm that like jesus and God play a trick on the devil with the whole uh, fish hook or mousetrap imagery. Russell thinks that Chrysostom is not into that. But then another scholar, uh, Greenfield, who does this big sort of comprehensive overview in traditions of belief in late Byzantine demonology, argues that actually Chrysostom is pretty okay using ideas or imagery of tricks to explain how Jesus as the incarnation and suffering and the passion and all this stuff is used as like a ruse to strip the devil of power. So some debate there. Not going to dive into that too much. I mean, we've been over ransom theory a bunch of times. And, you know, you can go back and check it out in season two if you want to. An interesting tradition that I think is cool that I don't think I've seen in any of the 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 sort of theories we've talked about so far is that the devil really gets peeved at Jesus and it's like, I'm going to get him now. <laughs> when Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in the Gospel of John, it's like, that was the last straw. That's the one that broke the satanic camel's back. You can't be stealing people out of hell, bro. Like, this is where I live and work. Like, this is my home. You can't be taking them away. And it's like, now he's got to go. He's got to go. <laughs> um, Which, do you think this part, like, pushes toward the theory that the devil has rights over the dead? And therefore might help us weigh in to that debate or, or no? What I'm pretty sure what I read in Traditions of Belief in Late Byzantine Demonology is that Chris, Chrysan- oh, Chrysanthemum, yeah, Chrysanthemum, John Chrysanthemum, <laughs> John Chrysanthemum, Chrysostom, yeah, I did think that the, the, was on the side that the demon had rights over humanity. That's my impression. That's, well, that's what I took away from that. So, yeah. But cool. like Gregory the Great, who was one of the last theologians we talked about last season, he sort of straddles the line between being a high cleric and a monk. 
we had that charming story of him killing a pregnant princess to illustrate that fact. So Mm. I think a lot of the monks think that they're like, especially you see like their stories, their progression, like they think that their visions and the temptations, these sort of demonic sex temptations are like the demons are just like out to just like, fuck these guys, man. Who do they think they are? Like they're trying to leave the world. Like we're going to throw the whole demon sex army at them, you know? And quite, quite literally, fuck these guys because, yeah, you know, yeah. they're tempting them with fornication. Yeah, so. yeah, 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 yeah. So, sorry, mom. Sorry, mom. I just said the F word. <laughs> Interesting that John is like, no, the secular clergy have it worse because get this. They actually have to see women. Eudoxia's revenge. I, I'm telling you, she was in his head. She had she she you know, she could be renting out rooms in his brain. That's that's how that's how bad it was. Miles of a- acreage of oh real estate gosh. in his head. So, but yeah, interesting. Like he's like, oh, it's actually the secular people who have to like hobnob with normal humans. Like they're the ones who are really being tempted by lust the most. So, okay, whatever. I guess that's that's something. Um, I feel like sometimes the the monks are valorized and their spiritual combat is really held up on high. And this is this sort of breaks with that a little bit. But in general, like people like Evagrius and monastic thinkers, John holds that the demons and our passions are tightly linked, that the that demons cause things like depression or lust or anger and so on and so forth. And one thing that I saw that was really cool in his demonology, cool is, is probably the wrong word, was a little, like, it seemed like there was a bit of himself that he was speaking of when he was speaking about depression. What was was, was the demon of depression? So. Travis, could you just sort of like walk us through? We I, 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 we have this passage from from Greenfield about what he thought. Like, what what's what's John's way of thinking about depression? Yeah, so he talks about it. Well, he talks about this. Apo, I'm, I I have to rely on other people for this. I do not have Greek, but aponoseos maybe aponoseos or despair. Yeah, or despair, as cutting us off from the hope that we would have toward God, toward heaven, salvation, etc. And so the devil is obsessed with having us lose that connection to hope. And that's why despair, or we might call depression, is one of the temptations, one of the passions, one of these um, affects that the devil is trying to encourage in us. And furthermore, let's see. A lot of nautical um, imagery here, like, you know, hopes that God is a safe anchor, the devil wants us to drown in the abyss. There's a lot of, like, uh, ship things happening here in his despair imagery. I, I don't know. Interesting to me. I don't know. Oh, well, I think also the idea of of being weighted down, the ponderousness of depression, um, actually fits in line with a whole trajectory of the history of depression, extending back to ancient medicine, that um, depressing thoughts pull are, are a downward sort of direction. There is a weight to depression that will extend into the Middle Ages as well. Um, he gives this example, though, about suicide, um, the sort of ultimate end of depression, right? Um, talking about Judas, who is said to have committed suicide um, after having betrayed Jesus for the silver, as recounted in Acts, right? Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say that it's in the book of Acts. Yeah. Um, and that this was, this was the devil's work, right, leading Judas to, um, to suicide. Now, Klaus, it's something. There's something interesting going on here, though, with 
the demon of lust and how this all ties together the body and our um, what keeps us from suicide. Could you talk us through a little bit of that? Well, yeah, like the whole example about the secular clergy having it worse off with the demon of lust than monastic monastics. Like we think of lust as being the body and its desires as as tools for demons in this this worldview. And in the passage of in passages about despair and depression, John writes that it's actually the soul's desire for the body that keeps body and soul together. That if we didn't have like I don't know, and it seems like it extends from like it can range from like a sense of self-preservation all the way to desire and pleasure. But he's like, if we didn't have that sense of self and the pleasures that go along with it, I would say the devil would be getting us all to commit suicide in mass. Like that there's something providential about desire and about our sense of self and self-preservation that is divinely ordained. And that like, and, and for me, it's like John is like, there's a lot of speculation. There's almost a lot of personal like character to what he's injecting into this to see like, like this is just like this lifeline that keeps us intact because like if we had to deal, if we didn't just like, I don't know, have this desire to maintain our bodies, this desire, this, this sort of attachment to our bodies, like the devil would just be like getting us all to jump off a cliff. Like, yeah, I think it's weird though, that he doesn't make any recourse to the goodness of material creation, which I think is a pretty safe theological road to go down. There are some, I think, edges he would be uncomfortable with, but it could one could simply argue that the body is good because it was created by God and that, sure, at death we will be separated and there is some sort of ultimate good where we're united with God in heaven outside of our bodies or, or with our resurrected bodies. But even so, resurrected bodies, y'all, yeah. right? Like, it's never a separation. Yeah. So, I, and I think, like, end. it's maybe that's just, he leaves that implicit. But yeah, he he, he describes it as, as providential. And I actually, I actually did look at the, the passage that was being cited here. He, he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't really develop a theology of creation through all of it but like mm-hmm. I, I guess it's implied but for me it's just interesting that the body can be so much of a burden and a trouble when it comes to one kind of desire and then like you look at another demon and it's like well that does desire is what's keeping us <laughs> from being from being all like massacred through suicidal impulses by the devil it's like i don't know it's, it's like you know demons well, upon demons here you know i think it's the the, the most interesting part to me is that a monastic in the fourth century would have anything good to say about the body at all. And so that's the yeah. part of this that really kind of piqued my interest, that there's something uh, there's something one can say that is maybe not a, a full theology of creation and the body, like sure, I'm, I'm asking too much of him here, but yeah, that self-preservation is divinely intended um, and that it has to do with, that it's grounded in desire I think is also interesting, but not that bad, you know, like, bad desire that leads to lust, but good desire of the soul for the body is like, okay, mm-hmm. I, I, I haven't heard the relationship that kind of theological anthropology um, articulated quite that way before, that the soul has a desire for the body mm-hmm. and that sort of there's a danger lurking there, but that part of it is good. That's yeah. that's interesting. I thought it was interesting too. I thought it was interesting too. Well, we, we mentioned a theology of creation. Maybe that takes us into um, the final the final movement of this episode which is an essay about Chrysostom's homilies on Genesis. Because like, I don't know, every late ancient Christian, he was obsessed with the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. 
So we read a piece entitled Chrysostom, Serpent, Animality, and Gender in the Homilies on Genesis by Ben Dunning, who's a professor at Fordham University. Um, I think he was a little ahead of us in graduate school. I, I've met him a few times. We both worked out at a Bally's in Porter Square. That's that's all I know. But it seems like a decent dude. <laughs> um, but yeah, he, he, works on, he works on late ancient Christianity and gender. And he's reading Chrysostom's homilies on Genesis. And he's interested in how the text is dealing with hierarchies and divisions between humans and animals, and then male and female. And so he's sort of taking his point of departure from philosophers like Jacques Derrida and Kelly Oliver, who observed that like Western thought has like desperately been trying to divide animals from humans in a hierarchical way from like day one. And that this also tells us a lot about the ways in which it plays into patriarchal systems. And so in Chrysostom's analysis of Genesis and creation, the sort of pride of place of humanity lies in the fact that they have a rational essence, that Adam in particular is made in the image of God. They have rationality, and that concomitant with that is, is language. Whereas animals are purely physical. Hum, like humans are in bodies, but they are not, they're in but not of, he seems to be saying, the body. Like they would be fine without him, he seems to be saying, which is interesting. And so maybe it sort of harkens back to what you were saying about like a monastic saying anything good about the body. Anyway, um, so what's a thing that sort of went back to an earlier episode, the Augustine episode, like Augustine has this whole incredibly tangential fantasy about Adam and Eve <laughs> procreating in the, in the garden without ever actually being horny and that they can just sort of like move their genitals the way we move our, our arms. And that's one, that's like one way to be like, oh, like for, for Augustine, like they were going to have sex, but it was going to be in the right way, joylessly and, you know, with, <laughs> and, and totally <laughs> instrumentally. Uh, well, ration, rationally, rationally, right? Like that there's no, no lack of control. Like the spontaneous erection was the sign of the fallenness for Augustine because it was... A yes. rebellion of the body against the mind. Yes, in in keeping with humanity's rebellion against God. Ah, poetic justice. Um, but <laughs> getting at Chrysostom through Dunning's analysis, it seems that Chrysostom was would have denied even that. Like they they were never going to have sex. Like that's how sort of alienated they were from their bodies. Which is interesting when we just talk about this despair thing. Yeah, it, it's 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 layers. But yeah, so the problem that Dunning sees in Chrysostom's homilies, like his sermons on, on Genesis, is that we have this definition of the human being as this reasonable speaking, you know, non-animal. And it turns out that there's another being that is thinking about stuff and speaking. And it's the serpent who talks to, to Eve, right? Like the, the, this, this is a talking serpent. And Chrysostom like realizes that he's got a problem when we when the the talking serpent comes up. And he has this hilarious quote where he's like sort of anticipating this problem. He's like, "Oh, you might say to me, you know, is it true that wild <laughs> wild animals share in the power of rational speech? This is not so. May it never be." <laughs> it's like, man, dude, chill out. 
<laughs> it's like yeah, those, he's really really upset those about dolphins it. clicking they're driving me crazy like i i don't know um well it's it seems to be like a real apprehension that someone could come in and say look it's a wild animal who before the fall had speech and lost it in the fall maybe um what that would threaten about perfect um, pre-lapsarian humanity is I think what's interesting there mm-hmm. like he has this anxiety that humans aren't special but what in the end would that threaten after the fall because you could just like neatly divide and say okay well after the fall you, you know animals lost their ability to talk <laughs> wah wah um, I think that the the sort of how the rest of creation in Genesis 1 is good but humans are very good like all of that, that specialness. God, we want to be so special, don't we, Klaus? Yeah. We really do. Yeah. Um, but it also will, as we'll see, I think it has implications for patriarchy and hierarchy more broadly if there's kind of a muddying there in a perfect Garden of Eden world. Right. Right. And so I think that's right. You were saying we want to be special. And that seems to be the key thing is that like, I think he quotes Derrida and it's like, we have to like, we have to deny that the animal has a a gaze that, you know, can be affixed upon us or something like that. And let's like maybe talk through a second, the link between that desire for a sort of like special exemplary, like not even exemplary, like that humans are special apart from all other animals and how that links to the ways that Chrysostom talks about men and women and gender roles like how are we supposed to make sense of the way those two relate to each other like what why is it why is this assertion that human beings are different completely different than animals and also a key proviso are dominant are there to to, are there to take care of animals and creation and are there to have dominion over them like what does that have to do with the gender roles like if you could just sort of put it in your own words like what what's what's going on with that yeah well, the trickiness that he gets himself into has to do with Eve's position with regard to animals. That's that's one way into the problem, right? So before the fall, um, who gets to name animals? Who gets authority over them? Chrysostom seems to be of two minds here. Over animals, perhaps, sometimes. <laughs> Put more simply, though, the problem is what is Eve's position relative to Adam before and after the fall? Are they, and there's quite a debate between whether or not they have some sort of equality until the fall and it becomes um, a hierarchical, patriarchal relationship that is a consequence of their sin and particularly of Eve's sin, right? She didn't use her rationality correctly. She was persuaded by the serpent to fall into sin and therefore as her punishment, She's no longer, she no longer possesses the same level of authority she had before um, over the rest of the world. She is now very directly subject to Adam. And Mm -hmm. scholars, um, as Dunning points out, debate exactly the nature of the sort of prelapsarian Adam and Eve relationship. Do they have, are they, are they equals or not quite? And Dunning comes out on the side that according to Chrysostom, they are not quite equals, but closer to it. And after the fall, it yeah. becomes a very direct uh, subjugation yeah. of Eve. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I think the point that I thought was funny that he made about, well, how do we know that Eve had dominion over animals and creation 
pre-lapse was the very fact that she wasn't afraid of the serpent when they're having a discussion. She's like, oh, a talking snake, yes. whatever. Like, I'm not afraid of this thing. I have dominion. Um, and I thought that was that was funny. But right, like this is the whole answer to the riddle as to how do we have a talking animal if human beings are the are the only ones who are supposed to be smart and able to communicate. And it's like, well, the devil made me do it. But yeah, like it's it's of course the devil working through the serpent that is the answer to the question. Because like of course Chrysostom's like, no, God forbid that a, an animal that my dog you know or a horse or whatever something from a, a 50s night you know TV show would start talking to me in that way. Like that would be horrifying. But it has to be the devil. And so this is the other, the sort of way in which animals and gender come together for for Dunning. This sort of point of like, like well, okay, like the, the snake is able to persuade Eve. Like what does that tell us about the gender of the snake and what it means to be a woman in in this piece? So could, what, what sense, could, what, what, how, how can we make sense of that? Like, that, what, like what persuasion persuadability tell us about gender in this in this piece yeah well the there's drawing on ancient notions of masculinity and femininity that extend back to the roman empire yeah it's like a mediterranean way of thinking about gender it's a mediterranean cultural read of gender here um that the persuader, the one with the logic and with the words, is identified as like the mask top, right? Right. Um, and so that puts the snake in a um, symbolically masculine position with regard to Eve, who is, uh, as someone persuaded, is associated with passivity, reception, and you know, femme bottoming, if you will. So these are the the ways that Dunning reads gender. In one instance, um, the, the serpent is multiply gendered. On Dunning's read, um, one, the, one primary gendering is this masculinization of the devil with regard to the act of persuasion and Eve. Right. And this is, this is tricky, though, because, like, and this is, I think, Dunning's point is that the gender of the serpent is ambiguous. So, okay, like, vis-a-vis Eve, the serpent is the masculine penetrator because it's able to persuade her vis-a-vis the devil the the serpent is an instrument and therefore can appear passive with respect to the devil's taking on and we we talk we we see this in the life of adam and eve from season one we talk about this with milton like this whole imagery of like the devil putting on this snake and like it's great in Milton because the devil puts the devil, the devil's got to like hold his nose before he goes into the snake. It's like, God, this sucks. This really sucks, but I got a job to do. I'm going to screw up all of God's plans and it's worth it. But, Oh God, it's terrible. This is terrible. (laughs) (laughs) Which I love. Um, But right. Like, so the serpent has this sort of, if we, if we use these kind of, ancient Greco-Roman Mediterranean cultural gender norms of, of what persuasion and, and penetration mean. The serpent is at sort of an, is sort of multifaceted. What this means about Adam being persuaded by his wife is another question that I'm not sure is actually resolved in this piece. But, um. Actually, I think that's an excellent question, but I do think we could resolve it. We could extend Dunning's argument to say that, well, we have what we have here is a persuasion, another act of persuasion. Yeah. 
on the part of Eve of her husband, which is, you know, again, he does, he talks about the categories of nature here with regard to Chrysostom as well, Dunning does. And so this would be a reversal of the quote unquote natural because they are, you know, Adam is getting topped by Eve here um, in, in a certain sense. He is taking the passive role. She's taking the active role mm -hmm. in this in this verbal, uh, rational act of persuasion before the sin. And so this helps to justify um, the curses that they get afterward. Right, right. And of course, like, it's so striking. We had talked about the legend and Chrysostom and his penance for throwing the prince else off a cliff has to sort of slither around on his belly. And he's, it's interesting how obsessed he is with the curse that the serpent receives from God, where, where uh, God's like, Oh, like your punishment is going to be in keeping with the punishment that I doled out to the devil. Of course, this doesn't actually appear in, in Genesis, right? Like this is, you know, this is Chrysostom like <laughs> ventriloquizing a little bit here, but like, Oh, what I sure, did, you know, sure. I humbled, your master and so i'm going to humble you and i'm also going to humble eve and we and adam's humble too but there seems to be like a hierarchy there um i don't know where we put the snake vis-a-vis -vis eve in the hierarchy i think eve is still like she wasn't the instrument she wasn't she, there's like a there's like a whole this is a whole thing because like there's like this sort of like a copy of a copy of a copy. Like she's like less the source of evil than less connected to the source of evil. It's more mediated, you know, through the serpent to her, to Adam. And that's also the argument for that Dunning makes for reading the question of gender roles in patriarchy, where like, it seems in Chrysostom that only Adam is the properly the made in the image of God. And that because Eve is made from his rib, it's like a copy of the image. It's like the, the, the photo facsimile of the image with Eve. And that's like another way of sort of saying like, oh, even because you see this, in, I think, in some interesting ways in womanist and feminist theology where patriarchy is seen to be a function of the fall, like patriarchy is linked to sin. And what you see if you look at Chrysostom is like, actually, no, there's, there's patriarchy, patriarchy before the fall, too. And that seems significant. I, now that you're actually articulating this, I something was bothering me about his read of the image of God and equating it with dominion. I felt like there's something that feels very different from Western Christian theological norms. Um, and I'm thinking in particular of Augustine here. So dominion is equated to the image of God and Eve is similar uh, gets the form, but does not get the image in the same way that Adam does on this read. It, the gender theological anthropology, the implications are huge here and like really troubling and upsetting for any kind of slightly feminist take on on Genesis, well, obviously. I, but like, but all you have to do is also look is also point out like, oh well, this is the second creation story. Like, like we we've, sure. we've already gotten the story. Like this, you know, we've this is like a this is an add on, right? You know, whichever one you think is the add on, but yeah. Um, right. Uh, good point. Um, I mean, there's, there's, one could easily argue with Chrysostom on this point, but I, what I was trying to get to was more the contrast with Augustine, who I <laughs> would not normally think of as my... Your bastion um, of feminist the theology. Here. My bastion of feminist theology, exactly. But for 
um, for Augustine, the image of God is not dominion, it's, which is so easily falls into patriarchy as we see in Chrysostom's theology, but instead is rationality, if I'm remembering correctly, mm-hmm. uh, that reason is connected more strongly than dominion to what the image of God means, which again is a huge theological move to say that God is not primarily rulership that, and what is reflected in humanity is not rulership, but instead is a way of thinking through things. And that's, and isn't <laughs> of, that the whole of, thing about like the faculties of the soul, like being in accord and proportion to the Trinity, like memory correspond, you know, like he, he, he like does a Trinitarian thing with, with the way human psychology works. And like, that's, so yeah, I think I, I see what you're saying. Like the human mind is, is the, is the image. And, and yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Another thing that is sort of, it, it, like this isn't the only place that Chrysostom talks about serpents. There, there's an interesting book that Dunning cites, and I, I glanced at it. To, and I did, I did a search for Chrysostom. It is uh, James Charlesworth's "The Good and Evil Serpent: How a Universal Symbol Became Christianized," and most of the things he says about the serpent with Chrysostom deal with the bronze serpent. The, like the sort of like from the Book of Numbers, where like you Moses would have like this this sort of like this sort of metallurgy the sort of like cast image of a serpent held up as a way of healing this this the snake bites for 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 children of israel bitten by snakes it's it's a long story the, the sort of faithless yeah it's a long story um and this becomes used as a trope for jesus being you know mounted on the cross and it's interesting that like okay the serpent is the tool of the devil in his reading of Genesis. But if the serpent, if the bronze serpent is in some ways like a recapitulation of like the serpent in a, an economy of salvation or damnation, it's interesting to, to see Jesus as at least symbolically analogous with the serpent in Genesis. Like, it's okay if the, if the serpent in Genesis is a tool of the devil, then Jesus qua bronze serpent is an instrument of divinity or salvation or whatever. But yeah, like, it's, I don't know, I think, I thought it was funny to see, like, I, you know, we're used to, if we think about this with St. Paul, like, Adam and Jesus, like, that's like, that's the Genesis prototype. But it's weird to be like, oh, and we're also going to, like, clone the snake, but make it good, <laughs> right? And then that, like, that's also the prototype. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. That Chrysostom's all about that—that that reading of, of of numbers. Yeah, that is that is a wild and very interesting thought. It makes me wonder how he reads Leviathan. Actually, the goodness of God's creation. Yeah. Leviathan. We've talked a little bit about before about how, you know, how do you see God's goodness in? something that is so destructive and scary. I wonder what he does there. Well, and obviously I'm given to talking about instrumentality a lot on this show and like Leviathan being another name for the devil. Like, okay, if we see the serpent in terms of this gendered logic as being the one penetrated by the devil and is thus feminized with respect to the devil, it's like, okay, well, does that mean that the devil is male? Is that like sort of like the fundamental understanding we're supposed to come away with is that the devil is sexed male and or gendered male yes. in this way. Um, Very good. Yeah, that was an assumption that didn't seem to kind of come out or cause any waves. And also 
we've talked before about that move of the um, the devil possessing the snake as as possession um, mm-hmm. and incarnation is the other way of looking at that as a kind of yeah. evil incarnation, anti incarnation, um, or like debased incarnation, right? Yeah. Exactly. And of, and of course, feminist theologians have talked about what incarnation looks like with regard to gender on many occasions. Um, but yeah, totally absent from the discussion so far is have we gendered the devil in any stable way is probably the more interesting question. I mean, sure, the devil shows up as male in lots of ancient Christian texts. But here we have the penetrated penetrator. Um, a much more ambiguous position. And so I guess I would say on on Dunning's really interesting and provocative read of Chrysostom that actually the devil is less gendered, strictly male, than usual in this text. Mm-hmm. I, and I think my, my take was that he kind of leaves off with the devil being gendered male. But if we're also looking at this from a providential point of view, the devil is himself an instrument that's being used in like the economy of salvation, whether he wants to be or not. Right. The sort of Felix culpa, you know, like the sort of, like the sort of the, the happy, the happy, you know, conundrum of post-lapsarian existence caused by the devil's interference. Like, again, he doesn't get outside the economy or the ontology of being an instrument in, in this whole thing as the same goes for Jesus. Again, that's like the whole thing with the bronze serpent. If like the Jesus, if Jesus is like also being analogized to the serpent who's a tool of the devil, and you know, going back to the episode that I did on Athanasius, like if Jesus is being talked about as like an organon, as an instrument, like he's also in an analogous position to the devil as being in this sort of you know, according to this gendered logic that like maybe we would want to like criticize or, or speak back to but like if this is the gender logic that's in play here then like jesus himself is also has an ambiguous gender as a result of this kind of providential thing going on ding 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 yes amen preach i like it organ on that the whole instrumentality of jesus i think runs to my ear a little bit against what will become more orthodox western theology because it's hard to hold that together with a kind of high Christology. Well, I think it might misunderstand what comes to characterize the dual nature of Christ, but I could be convinced otherwise. Yeah, so next episode, we'll be talking about um, Neoplatoism, you know, the new, the new Plato that's hitting the streets. Uh, no, we'll talk about Neoplatonism because it's uh, important, especially in it's important at first in the Byzantine context, and then it gets exported to Latin Christendom too. But yeah, we're going to get into how people who aren't Christians think about angels and demons and, and all the rest of it. So yeah. It's going to get wild and interesting. It's going to be an amazing, right? I'm actually quite looking forward to this part. Yeah. Very heady stuff. Um, good angelology, demonology. Very, very cool. We'll all grow together with, with the angels in Neoplatoism. Yes, yes. Okay, well, thanks for joining us. See you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Ward, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. 
Thank you.